the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, aliens feel extremely disrespected after humans discontinue an awesome Snapchat streak. Note to aliens, it was a mistake. We'll totally start it up again. Don't destroy the Earth. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel, and with me today is Koki Daniel, who happens to be my daughter. And hello, Koki. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good. And we also have Claire Brage here, who happens to be Grace Brage, uh, Grace Borger, <laughs> now the uh, the mail clerk's sister. How's it going, Claire? Going good. What about you? Good. Did you both have a good Christmas? Delightful. It was really good. Okay, good. Because I would just have to cut it out if you said not. All right. <laughs> this time we have a discussion with Bain Slushmaster General Gray Reinhardt, who gives us a really in-depth look at the Bain manuscript submission process. Now, this is not one of those podcasts where we try to teach you to write. In other words, it's not, a, it's not about content at all. Whew, because I hate those panels, I hate those kind of discussions, because there's nothing you can really say in 30 minutes that will um, that'll really get anybody there as far as submissions. And those kinds of discussions are just highly repetitive and super boring. But this one isn't, because Gray and I really get into what happens when you submit a book to Bain, how long it takes, what the process is, and why everything works the way it does, and what to expect. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Happy New Year, everyone. It's going to be a great one. And of course, we're ringing in the new year with new Bane hardcovers. First up is The Storm by David Drake. Now, since Koki has been to David Drake's pig pulling birthday party a couple of times and even watched fireworks on the 4th of July out at the Drake place, right, Koki? Yep. Pretty awesome. Um, let's have her tell us about The Storm. This is the exciting sequel to David Drake's Time of Heroes series, loosely based on Arthurian legend, but set in a science fiction far future. It started with the first book, The Spark. In the storm, it is far in the future. The universe has shattered into chaos and monsters. John, the leader, has dedicated his life to reuniting the scattered hamlets into a commonwealth where all humans can live protected against the darkness and the things that live in the darkness. But no man can reshape the universe by himself. John has makers to build weapons and clerks to handle the business of government. But he also needs champions to face the power of chaos, which will not listen to any argument but force. Lord Pal of Buin is one of those champions. He has fought monsters and evil on behalf of mankind, and he will fight them again. But now, Gunthrum, the man who transformed Pal from an ignorant rube into a bulwark of the Commonwealth, has disappeared. Pal must locate his friend and mentor, and then he must battle an entity which may be at the core of the splintered universe. Pal of Buin, 
a humane man in a universe full of inhumanity. Pal of Buin, a strong man in a universe where some recognize only strength. Pal of Buin, a hero who will keep going until something stops him and who hasn't been stopped yet. Also out in January is Arcad's World from celebrated science fiction author James L. Cambius. You want to tell us about that, Claire? Young Arcid is the only human in a distant world, on his own among beings from across the galaxy. His struggle to survive on the lawless streets of an alien city is disrupted by the arrival of three humans. An eccentric historian named Jacob, a superhuman cyborg girl named Baichi, and a mysterious ex-spy known as Ri. They seek a priceless treasure which might free Earth from alien domination. Arcad risks everything to join them on an incredible quest halfway across the planet. With his help, they cross the fantastic landscape, battling pirates, mercenaries, bizarre creatures, vicious bandits, and the harsh environment. But the deadliest danger comes from treachery and betrayal within the group, as dark secrets and hidden loyalties come to light. Thanks. Arcad's World by James L. Cambius and The Storm by David Drake are available in January 2019 at booksellers everywhere. So happy, happy, jolly, jolly, go out and get um. I want to welcome Gray Reinhardt back to the podcast. Hey, Gray. Hey, Tony. Glad to be here. So, Gray, Gray Reinhardt is Bain Consulting Editor and uh, also known as the Bain Slush Master General, who uh, is our editor in charge of dealing with, um, initially, uh, with unsolicited uh, submissions. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, get, get some of Gray's biography in so that um, you'll all be suitably impressed, as am I. Um, <laughs> and you're easily except impressed. For that, <laughs> except for that Clemson thing. So you grew up in South Carolina, I believe, um, or uh, thereabouts. Um, yeah, I spent most of my growing up years in uh, Georgetown, South Carolina, right down on the coast uh, between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. Yeah. And uh, did you, you you were in the Air Force for many years. You had a career in the Air Force. I was 20 years in the Air Force uh, with a number of different assignments and uh, different actual specialties that I, I, don't, I, I guess I can't say I really specialized in much of anything because I did so many different things. Mm-hmm. Did, you, um, did you go in on officer? Yeah, I went to uh, through the Air Force ROTC program, uh, so I was commissioned a second lieutenant out of college, and uh, actually had a few months of uh, casual status because they weren't ready for me at my uh, base of assignment, and so I, I, if I remember correctly, I graduated in May, and I worked in the paper mill for. Uh, three or four months before I went in in September and uh, started my Air Force time. Oh. You mean uh, the mill down? The paper mill in Georgetown. Actually, uh, in, in the box plant. Oh, my God. You know, I grew up near, until uh, I was 10, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which has a, has, has a has paper a, mill. A pulp mill? Yes, and the smell lingers with me in my mind still. <laughs> I'm not at all surprised because the pulp mill was right next to the box plant in Georgetown. Uh, So, yeah, we were well used to the the 
rotten egg smell. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> on to more pleasant subjects. So you kind of, I mean, you, you began um, writing and editing in the Air Force toward the end of your career, right? I mean, you were, you were writing speeches and such. Or well, my papers. last assignment was as a speechwriter to the Undersecretary of the Air Force. Uh, and I did that for two years and actually wrote for two undersecretaries and in between for the acting secretary. Uh, but I had, uh, up until that point, I had written some technical papers, I had written uh, some articles, and I had written a nonfiction book on uh, education and specifically on combining or applying uh, quality improvement tools and techniques to the classroom and to the educational system. Hmm. But had you done any fiction at, to that point? or was I had tried and failed and tried and failed a number of times. Uh, when I was overseas on a remote tour in Thule, Greenland, I spent my time there learning to play guitar and writing a novel because there's really not a lot to do uh, in, in Thule, although I did get out and do some other things as well. Uh, that novel is unpublished and should probably remain unpublished. Uh, but I had tried at various times to to create stories. Um, I had some success, as I said, in nonfiction, uh, but it took a while to to get the fiction going. So after you got out, uh, banged around trying to figure out what to do, or did you pretty much know, I'm going to start filking and writing stories? <laughs> um, I actually, I had a job lined up when I retired uh, that I was going to be writing speeches and uh, doing uh, some marketing-type writing for a small company, and that job fell through. And when that job fell through, then came the banging around figuring out what was going to happen next. Uh, and one of the things that came up was, hey, why don't I try to get into this uh, this publishing thing? Um, and one step led to another, and I ended up getting a call from Tony Weisskopf saying, hey, we want you to uh, handle our unsolicited manuscripts. What year was that? That would have been uh, 2007. Wow. So you've been doing this since? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Started in May of that year. Yeah. Wow. I had actually contacted Bain uh, earlier than that, uh, 2006, which was shortly after Jim Bain had died. Um, not necessarily anything other than a coincidence uh, that when my job fell through and I started looking at could I get into publishing primarily because I used to drive past Oxford University Press every day and thought I'll, I'll apply to everything that they have I opened up the phone book and was actually surprised at the time to find that Bain Books was here in Wake Forest because I associated Bain Books with New York Publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a surprise to a lot, a lot of people and uh, a happy surprise to... A uh, very pleasant surprise to, to me. Yeah. So um, 
you started in 20, I, I guess, uh, well, I did slush for a long time, um, from on and off, uh, I started in like 99 doing some Bane slush and then, um, I think I really started doing it from 2000, 2001 up until 2005 or so. Um, so, uh, I'd been, I guess somebody was doing it in between when, uh, you and I, when you came on. So. I don't know who had been doing the paper slush, um, because that's, that's what I started in mm-hmm. it was just paper slush. I would drive up here to the office about once a month and drive back with boxes full of slush. And then for a while, um, they would package things up at the post office box in New York and ship big UPS boxes full of slush to my house, 70, 80 pounds of slush in a box. But if you were doing paper slush, then that, that's how, probably how you were getting it as well. Well, I lived in New York, um. so I would drive my Jeep up to the uh, the old Bain office in Riverdale, and and pick up um, enough to last me for several weeks, and and it would fill up my Wrangler, of course. I'm not at all surprised. I I, I never filled up the back of my pickup truck, but I would fill up the seat beside me and the floorboards. Yeah, and I had a lot to get through because nobody had read Slush for a year and a half or so, maybe two years before I came on. There had been a hi- hiatus, and so. Well, um, later, um, after I was able to whittle down some of some of the backlog, um, it turned out that there was there was a little bit more that needed to be go- gone through because in the interim, after Jim Bain died, uh, a lot of things sort of got shuffled around, and in the shuffle. Um, where things got piled on other things, and, and the uncovering was, oh, this is this is some slush that we need to answer. Yeah, yeah. And then I found the same thing to be true when I when I took over the electronic slush. Um, that had been handled by someone else for a long period of time, but it was the volume was such that they were not able to, to keep up with it. Uh, so it was quite a backlog. And yeah. actually in the past few months, the backlog has gotten worse because we've been involved in some other things. Well, the East Lush used to be a, uh, a volunteer effort back in the day. And they would send me, they would all like, I, I believe this is the way it worked. Um, I just know that, that I used to get it. Um, again, there was way more paper slush, um, and it's changed exactly the opposite now. It is exactly the opposite now. We probably get 20 to 1 or 30 to 1 in terms of uh, electronic submissions over paper submissions. And you're right that it used to be, we used to have a, a large team of volunteers who had access to the system and could go in and if they liked a particular title, they could pull that title and they could uh, assign themselves, basically, as the evaluator for that. And that worked for the first several years uh, of the system. But as the volume got more and more, uh, I started looking at there was a possibly a different way of doing it. So the way we do it now is I'm the first cut. And... 
I then, when I have read enough of something that I like, I'll set it aside and I'll actually assign it to the folks who are still on the volunteer mm-hmm. team. This way, they are getting things that are a little better than the vast majority of things that we get. They're not opening something and finding that it's a children's book or a book of poetry or something that we're never going to publish that someone has submitted to us just because they were able to find a form yep. on online and fill it out. Yeah. So I think that's, that's from the yeah. from the standpoint of the team, um, they appreciate that, that most of the things that they're reading are things that that will get your attention and and hopefully keep your interest to the end. Yeah. And that are books that we could possibly publish because we don't do not right. Know, we don't do right. They're not they're not seeing the memoirs. They're not do seeing the, the the mysteries the, exactly. Yeah. Um. So uh, maybe we should talk about the um, the process. A little bit just to and, and describe what it is what we're talking about how does it look um, people there's so many people that that feel like that they are sending their stuff into a black hole sometimes when they're sending their stuff out by the way I should also mention that since that, that you had you've had quite a successful career as a, as a writer um, haven't uh, <laughs> It depends on your definition of success. Uh, I've had some things published. Yes, so. you've had some things published, which is success. Well, I mean, you got some awards and stuff, right? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, no, you haven't got an award. No. You got some nominations, that's no. for sure. But uh, and um, and know, I've been published in in some some pretty cool magazines, yeah. and such, yeah, and a book out from uh, from from Wordfire Press. What's the name of the book again? Walking on the Sea of Clouds. Walking on the Sea of Clouds. Yeah. Near future science fiction. Uh, technological drama, if uh, if if that rings a rings a bell in anybody's mind. Well, if it's anything like your other stuff, it's it's pretty uh, it's it's character driven but science based kind of science fiction. And that's exactly what I tried to do. I tried to make it as realistic as possible using uh, experiences that I've had in emergency response or what I've learned in working with space systems in the service, uh, but also tried to really get into the motivations of why people do the things they do. And in this case, uh, why people are motivated to uh, establish a a colony and and begin our process of uh, getting off this planet. Cool. So, I mean... Not that, not to put any thoughts in anyone's heads, but if, you know, if I was trying to get through a cer- certain uh, editor, I might look at some of the stuff he's done, see what he likes, at least what he does. <laughs> it might not be a, a, a surefire clue because many people like a lot of things that they don't write. But at the other, on the other hand, um, what the hell could it hurt? Well, the thing that I would say beyond that, and I appreciate the plug, I'll. Yeah. I'll, I'll we can repeat it later if we want to. Okay. Um, is it's really important for writers to read the kinds of things that Bain publishes. Uh, 
Uh, if they're writing science fiction, they should read some of our science fiction. If they're writing fantasy, they should read some of our fantasy. Because we get too many submissions from people who, while their, their writing may be first rate, the type of story they're trying to tell is not quite the action-driven, uh, high-stakes kind of story that we find our fans prefer. And if we publish stuff that isn't what they like, it drops dead often. And we don't want to do that to a writer. <laughs> no, we don't. It's like, you know, it's like we, we, we are a branded company that, that publishes stuff that... Um, that people they look at the imprint a lot of times and say, "Oh, this is a this is a story I want to read. This is this comes from a you know." They know that um, they're going to get something that um, that is not going to, for instance, have a you know the, that an angst ridden main character who commits suicide at the end probably. Right. So you know, we just don't do that sort of thing. So you know, Tor will do that for you. Fine. So, in fact, isn't that what all tor- never mind? Oh, don't go there. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, but um, so absolutely, um, you know, it's it's so amazing the amount of slush I got that just they had. It was clear they had no clue what we published, um, and it was it was sad because they'd wasted everyone's time, including mine, but you know theirs um, as well. And got their hopes up over something that um, that didn't have a snowball's chance in hell because it was not anything we were going to, you know. It's not that it wasn't any good; it's that it, we would have been done a disservice to them if we'd taken it. Right, you know? and we we were de- we were not the market for it. Um, and I think, in some respects, the the shift from paper submissions to electronic submissions, while it has made a lot of things easier, has also made it easier for people to submit more blindly than they did before because it's it's easier. It's less expensive. They don't have to, to think about, I'm investing money in printing this 600-page manuscript and and paying for postage and all of that when you know they can just upload it and press a button and it's gone and we do get a lot of things that are you know exploring the the zeitgeist of the moment and and you know kind of highfalutin literary type submissions that just aren't the blue collar down to earth blood and guts kind of things that we that we like to publish yeah yeah so um is now i used to get these you could sometimes physically tell it was a problematic or a problem manuscript because it would be on scented paper or they would use a weird font um or they we've, would bind it with ribbons we've gotten a few would, of those you know, i've but, gotten ones that um are full of hand drawn illustrations uh and is there an are, electronic are, equivalent to actually actually there is tells, um, um often i can tell that there's there's a problem if i look at the file size and the man, and it's uh, 
when I'm expecting, say, a 100,000-word manuscript in a, in a re reasonable format to come in at around a megabyte, when I look at the file size and see that it's a 25-megabyte file, I know that I'm going to find something unusual in there. Most of the time, it's a piece of cover art or what they have envisioned as cover art. Um, sometimes there will be maps. Sometimes there will be uh, embellishments in, in the file itself. For instance, they will have gone to the trouble of formatting it like a book instead of like a manuscript. And they will have done drop caps and chapter headers with fancy fonts and, and things like that. None of which is necessary. In fact, we specifically say, please send us simply a manuscript and let the story speak for itself. Yeah. And anyway, we're not going to use any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> all we care about is the manuscript. We're going to redo it all. Um, and do it, you know, and pack it. we got an entire staff that does these things. So don't, don't spend your time worrying about that. So what is the right way? How do you do it? You want to. Well, the right way first is to, is to write a good story. Yes. That, do your seem, research. that seems to fit the kind of thing that we're, we're looking for. Yeah. Um, first of all, learn to write. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that might be ninety nine point nine percent of the well of the process, but yeah. certainly you know to write to be able to write with clarity is probably the most important thing as a first step. Yeah, um, and then to proceed from that to be able to write with some uh, some amount of power or some amount of style would yeah. be a second step. But, well, let's, but uh, let's let's set that let's bracket that and talk about it later but talk about the the actual say you say you've done that or think you have um then the first step is you, to open up the writer's guidelines and see what they say uh, and to to follow them as best you can in terms of formatting uh, your manuscript and making sure that you include not only the manuscript but a synopsis of the story uh, four to eight pages that actually tell the story from beginning to end and we do not require a cover letter in fact we specifically say that uh, cover letters are optional um, but if you're going to send a cover letter make it as simple as you can dear bain books i'm submitting my 120,000 word uh, science fiction novel for your consideration mm. thank you for your time and this is, you find all this stuff on the website. Yes. Com. It's not any mystery where where it is. Um, although you might, it, you used to have to search for it a little bit. Um, is it, we've redesigned the site. We've redesigned the site, but still, if you go on Bain.com and you look under the frequently asked questions, the I think the second item on the frequently asked questions is what are the manuscript guidelines? And when you open that up, they're pretty clear. In fact, we recently submitted to the folks who run the website an update. Um, I didn't check today to see whether that update has been done, uh, but it probably will be before the end of the month. 
Um, and that was just to, to clarify a couple of questions that I had gotten um, in terms of uh, font preferences and, and things like that. And along the, along the way, we decided that we would clean up a couple of other issues. So you, what, what are the formats you want your, the manuscripts in? We just want a serif font, um, and obviously we can't demonstrate a serif font on an audio-only podcast, uh, but a serif font is one that has little tails at the edges of the letters. Um, and they're, Good examples would be. Would be Times New Roman uh, is a serif courier. font. Courier is a serif font. Courier, of course, is sort of still the industry standard, um, and those are the two that we specify. Uh, but there are others that are perfectly acceptable. Uh, Book Antiqua is a good one. Bookman Old Style is a good one. But if you have Times Roman, then you're good to go. And it just doesn't matter um, beyond that, right? Beyond that, uh, we do ask for double spacing, and we ask for, for simple formatting. Uh, we We don't ask for people to take it on themselves to... A format with curly quotes instead of straight quotes or with M dashes instead of just two hyphens next to one another. Um, we just ask for them to submit a, a simple, clean manuscript that we can easily read because the easier it is for us to read it, the more of it we're likely to read. And we would not like to get PDFs. We want a... We specifically say we want uh, rich text format, RTF files. Okay. Uh, some folks have asked why, and honestly, I don't know because that uh, predates my being here. Um, but, yeah, PDFs are, are more difficult for us to deal with through the electronic system. Okay. I often see a PDF submission and think that, I've got an amateur paranoid writer who's afraid I'm going to steal their idea. <laughs> and that the, may be. I, I don't know. I can't so get I into I would the, never submit a PDF just for the, because you're t sending the editor a message that you don't really trust them to. I hadn't really thought about it, but that's, you. yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so th these people wrap their beautiful babies up and put them into the hopper. Yep. <laughs> uh, what happens to these babies? Um, usually within the first few weeks of receiving something, uh, I try to do this very quickly. I will at least open every single one to make sure that the file works, that when I open it up, there are actually words there. And if there are not, or if the, the file comes up and it appears to be corrupted in some way, I will send a note and say, hey, there's a problem with your submission and these are the steps you need to take to fix it. And I try to do that within two to three weeks of us receiving something. Mm -hmm. So somebody doesn't have to sit around and think, did I send them a... Did I send the right file format file or, or did I... Horrific and, and that they couldn't even open. Exactly. And I'm sitting here worried about whether they like my story and they haven't been able to read it. Right. And, yeah. um, now, at the, same, at the same time I do that, I, I try very hard to uh, send back responses to the people who have submitted something that we are clearly not looking for. 
we're only looking for novel length science fiction and fantasy. And occasionally we have people who submit, no kidding, short stories. Well, we're not a short story market. So that first look is also a content glance. Just to... I'm, yeah, I'm also looking at, you know, is this a legitimate submission for us to, to spend a lot of time and look at? Um, and so, yeah, I will send po- folks a note that say, we're only looking for novel length science fiction and fantasy. Your short story or your children's book or your picture book or your memoir does not meet our needs. And I try to get those processed as quickly as I can as well because it allows me then to spend more time on the ones that actually might fit into our catalog. Now, when it comes time to actually looking at those, then it becomes a little more um, intense process because if there's a cover letter, I'll read it. Um, but the cover letter never makes or breaks the the submission. I'll open the, the file and find chapter one and start reading from there. That's really the main thing. Uh, and I like to explain it in the way of imagining... If, folks, imagine that you are in a bookstore and you only have enough money to buy one book but you are faced with a shelf full of books to consider. How much of each one of those are you going to read in order to decide which one you're going to spend your money on? That's, that's where I am in the process. I have hundreds and hundreds of submissions that are waiting for me to, to look at them in depth, but I, I can't read every one of them in, in their entirety, I have to just read as much until I realize this is not for me, this is not mm-hmm. for us, and press on. So this is a good thing to know for, because I've, I don't know how many writers that I've, I've you know, talked to, prospective uh, published writers over the years, and they, so many people obsess over their cover letters. Um, and they just rewrite them and rewrite them. And I've always thought that if you would spend that time working on your first chapter, your, it would your it first would. two chapters, you know, and just making sure that they are absolutely gem flawless things uh, of beauty, and just just say here's a here's a book in your cover letter, and not not try to word your you know your pitch or whatever because nobody cares really. Uh, we do care, but we, we don't care. Well, we care enough to read them. Yeah, absolutely. and we care enough to to make note right. of you know if you are writing space opera and your background is astrophysics or you know, something that yes. that yeah. fits in, then well, first of all, we're going to we're actually going to expect a little more in that case. Uh, from someone that we don't know anything about. But uh, the cover letter is not going to sell us the story. The story is going to sell us the story. Yeah. And you can make a mistake in a cover letter if you don't keep it simple. That can prejudice whoever reads it against the story coming up. If you write a, a cover letter. A bad cover letter is yeah. worse than no cover letter at all. Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason that we ask for a synopsis is 
that let's say that I've um, read the first few pages of the story and I'm not really sure that it's something that we want to publish, that's when I'm going to go find the synopsis, if there is one, and read the summary of the whole story. Because it may be that the first chapter isn't grabbing me, but the story doesn't actually begin or or get interesting until chapter 3. If I'm looking at a synopsis or a chapter-by-chapter outline or something of that nature, then I can tell, A, that there is a a complete story here, and B, whether that complete story is one that would that would fit our needs and that would appeal to our audience. Yeah. So the synopsis is very is very useful in that uh, for those who 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 think, well, they just read a couple of chapters and they, then they they dumped it back to me and and they didn't realize how great it was. The synopsis is your chance to say, look, here is the entire story. And yep. somebody who is a perceptive reader like Gray will say, well, I'm going to go look at chapter five. You can take a sample there because that seems like the meat of the tale begins. And uh, and there are many times where I will, and this is another thing, honestly, people, please use the word chapter before the number that you put in the book. Don't just label things with Roman numerals or with Arabic numerals, put chapter one, chapter two. Why? Because I can use the find function and I can find every time the word chapter is used. And I have done this more times than I can count where I will go from chapter to chapter and I will read the last few paragraphs of one chapter and then the first few paragraphs of the next. And I'll process my way through more of the story just in order to see, is there a flow and, and is this going somewhere? It makes, it makes my job a lot easier. But it also, you're exactly right. Um, the, the synopsis tells me there really is a story arc and it's interesting. And then I can dip back in in various places in the story and make a make a decision as to whether this is one that I want to keep around and read in depth. I don't have time to read them in depth as they come in. So what happens is when I find one that I really think is going somewhere and and seems to fit our the kinds of things we publish, I'll send the author a note and say, "Hey, I'm um keeping this out of the slush pile for further examination. Hang on, be patient. Um, we'll get back to you. So when does um, when does that happen about in the time frame of the I had gotten it to the point where I was be able to do that within about four months of us initially receiving a story. Um, that has gone back up, unfortunately. We're up to about eight, I think, now, um, because I had some other um, duties that I was performing for a while. 
And uh, now that I'm back into it, I'm trying to whittle that time back down. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'll send that note to folks. And then imagine that uh, that it's a funnel. And we get a whole bunch of submissions in, in the top of the funnel. But it's a... It's not just one funnel; it's a series of funnels. We're the, the the initial one. We're putting, taking the good ones out and putting them into another hopper. And right now, I think there are probably five or six hundred, maybe up to upwards of seven hundred, uh, in the big funnel right now. Uh, and there are about fifty in the smaller funnel. And those are the ones that I assign out to people to read. And then as they bubble up, I read them as well. So that when the time comes that we have made a determination that either this is one that we're going to recommend to Tony Weisskopf or this is one we're ultimately going to say no on, uh, some sometimes upwards of four different people have read that novel in its entirety. So that process takes a significant amount of time to work through that. So the reason it takes so long is because you, we get an enormous amount of submissions. That's just we, we the get baseline a lot. Yeah. reason. Yeah. We get a, a hundred or so submissions a month and you know, it there's a takes a finite amount of time to look at each one, and especially it takes a, a much longer amount of time to read through the ones that we are looking at in their entirety. Because I'm not just reading through it; I'm reading through it and I'm making notes. And sometimes I'm reading through it and I'm making notes, and I'm challenging what the author has written by doing a little bit of side research. I'll give I'll give a quick example. Uh, we had we have one that I'm getting ready to. Uh, actually, I'm waiting on an, <laughs> on one of the other people to send me their response, and once I do, then I'll package up all the comments and send them to Miss Weisskopf. Um, but in the midst of this story, the author used a date reference and alluded to the existence of a particular thing. And as I was going through it, I realized I'm not sure that had been invented yet. Mm-hmm. So I actually stopped and did a little research and found that it those the dates were not holding up in terms of how the author had written it. And so my that's part of what I do is submit to the publisher. Here's a book, and here are things that need to be fixed in the book or things that I think are somewhat questionable, uh, and that way she can make a more informed decision as to whether or not that's... Yeah. So it's a, it's not just an on-off switch that, that's at this point when dealing with the book. This is a, a evaluation. Very that, much so. Uh, that has points for the uh, ultimate... Uh, and 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 many consider. times, even if the at this point, even if the answer is no, the ones that have gone through this very in-depth look, uh, the authors will get fairly detailed notes as to 
what we liked and what we thought was problematic. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have time to do that kind of uh, evaluation on everything that comes in uh, because we just don't. Yeah, sure. There aren't enough hours in, in the day. Yeah. Well, we, we would have to pay an army of grays. <laughs> And it, you can't find an army. <laughs> Even if Nobody wants that. Them. Nobody so, wants that. So the um, what what percentage do you think make it through to that sort of rigorous evaluation? I mean, it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but well, um, actually, if anyone is familiar with uh, venture capital investing, it's I've, I've found that it's very much the same in terms of. For every hundred people who go and make a pitch to uh, to venture capitalists, one might get funded, mm. um, and oftentimes the percentage is even lower. And the same is true true for us. Yeah. Um, I my original marching orders were were that I was only to send the top one percent to Ms. Weisskopf for her to evaluate. Uh, I have fudged on that a little bit, and I have sent forward some things that I thought were close, uh, not quite in that top 1% category, but close enough that I wanted her to make the call on them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's safe to say that uh, certainly no more than two out of every hundred uh, would actually make it to her to make a final call, uh, but much less than one out of a hundred actually make it through to being selected for publication. Well, I mean, this has to be because we, um, we don't, we don't even publish one debut novel a month we put we published far fewer maybe two a year yeah maybe three i think the biggest number i've seen us do is six in a year like but that's like incredible that was that was very unusual and some of those if i remember correctly uh were people who had already published they were they were debuts for us but they were not their debut novels yeah sure yeah so the um the thing is, is that while, and, and if you're getting 100 books in a month um, and you can publish two, um, you do the math out there, you know. But the, the thing is, is that the math doesn't work that way. It's that 99% of the stuff, um, if you have a clue about how to write and tell a story, it's your stuff's going to be a contender. Um, yeah. Because there's so much stuff you wouldn't believe how how inept a lot of the stuff is. So you're not really competing against those people. There's a there's a there's a oh like, no like I, in I, the New York Marathon. There's a group of real racers who might win, and then there's the rest of the giant crowd who's no, they're who's not gonna win. Uh, well, I tell folks that you know never to think of it as that they're competing against the other people in the slush pile yes. because I just don't think that's true. They're competing with the other people in the catalog. They're competing with the other people on the bookshelves now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's and especially for that. us because yeah. we, because our publication numbers are fairly modest and many 
of our books are already on contract. We already have authors who are who are consistently producing the kind of work that our audience wants. We just don't have the the room, if you will, to bring on debut authors uh, as often as we would like. Very often. We have had to say no to some properties that that I thought were very fine novels, but they just simply were not going to fit in or were not. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have something that you can't publish in a year or two that you would have to schedule out. Well, but see, that that, that in and of itself has, has, there are some that we're still holding on to. And we have had for a number of years, yeah. and have not told the author no yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's because we don't like to say no if there's a chance that we might say yes. Yeah. Now, when it gets to be that long, we're not averse to uh, those authors deciding that they're going to yeah. take the property well, somewhere in else. Communication with them. I try to and keep the lines point. of communication very open. Yeah. Um, I spend a good portion of my time, in fact, corresponding with authors who write in and say, hey, it's been six months since I heard from you. Where are we? Mm-hmm. And I can write back and say, well, you've gone from having 20 in front of you in that good enough for a second look pile to only having 12 in front of you. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're... We're making progress. We're getting closer. Um, And for some of the folks whose uh, things have actually made it past that step and have been recommended, uh, I can tell them that, you know, we, it's still, it's still in there. Um, But just as, just as we try to maintain good communication from us to the authors we appreciate it when authors will communicate with us when they have found another home for their story um, I sent in this case I sent uh, a note to an agent and said uh, hey we'd like to hold on to this story the, the opening of it is pretty good and we're going to put it into our you know, hold it for further review and the answer I got back was well we sold that a few months ago and I thought to myself, why didn't you let us know so that we wouldn't have invested the additional effort in looking at it. And someone else's manuscript could have gotten that. Exactly. Could have gotten that attention. Um, So it does work both ways. I, I think that we have made it both, you know, through what we've done at conventions, from what we're doing here on the podcast, from what we've done on YouTube with our live slush sessions that we did in the spring. Uh, We are trying to make sure that we get the word out about how we do it, and we're also trying to make sure folks know that if they have questions, they can ask them. Um, What would be a... I mean, you... uh, there's really no point in writing in until six months. Or, I would agree with that. You know. we, our advertised um, response time is six to nine months. Yeah. And I try very hard to make sure that we 
are are faster than that, which is why now that it's up around the seven or eight month point, I want it. I want to get it back down under six months because I just I've been on the other side. I know what it's like oh, to yeah. be waiting, and I I I want to treat every manuscript that comes in the way I would like mine to be treated. Uh, I it's sort of the the golden rule of of reading slush is how I'm looking at it. Um, so if something makes the second cut, how long is uh, is the could the wait be on that? And that's more problem. That's more that late. is a, a longer wait. And honestly, yeah. right now, and I hate to say it, but it's up around two years. Mm-hmm. I and I well, I, I can't do any more than apologize for the delay and the inconvenience, and keep again yeah. keep the communications open. Um, in fact, one that I was looking at just yesterday uh, I came in in October of 2016 and I'm, I'm getting ready to put together a, a report on that uh, based on my assessment and the, the two other people who mm-hmm. have read that novel um, and it just it takes things take time yeah. that's that so it- it's um, it seems like the the takeaway for a writer from that would be like, would be, keep writing, um, do not you know do not let this <laughs> anticipation of anything one way or another be a, a limiting factor on your. On and your that, and that's exactly why in our, in the automated response that our system sends out to people, um, it says start working on your next novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in you know, in use the time use the time in the interim to your best advantage. Yeah. Well, what about if uh, the person has written the first novel and what they anticipate is a series, and then they immediately start working on a second novel in the series? Would now I would say, do not send that to me if it <laughs> if it was me. Um, do should they send that second novel in um, after they complete it as as continuation of the slush or i I get the question and uh occasionally i do see the the sequels come in before the first one has been Mm -hmm. we've finished with um i much prefer it when people ask the question so that i can say please don't send it because again now you're 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 taking space in the system and taking time that would could be used on on other projects but the main reason is that if we decide to publish or to make an offer on the first novel the very next question we're going to ask is what else do you have and at that point you can say well i've written books two and three and you know they're ready for you to see them Uh, Mm -hmm. to send those into the slush pile uh, really is less advantageous to sending them to the actual developmental editor who is working with you on yeah. your first novel. Also, you know, we may ask for a substantial rewrite, and that's going to just completely blow out. <laughs> Could very those well other uh, books that you've written in the series because we may want something that throws your entire logic off. For the but it it brings up another issue that we see from time to time. Uh, our our guidelines say we prefer not to get simultaneous submissions. Mm-hmm. 
and we prefer not to get multiple submissions. Um, I don't know that everyone understands what those are. Uh, simultaneous submission would be you submit it to us, and at the same time, you submit it to DAW and TOR and ACE and everybody else out there in the world. Um, no publishers like that because if we decide to make you an offer, we don't necessarily, especially for us, we don't have the resources to get into a bidding war with other publishers. And if another and publisher makes author, you makes you an offer, we're going to say so, congratulations yeah. and and you know good luck on yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, multiple submissions, a little bit different thing. And that's you've written three novels and you decide you're going to submit all three novels to us at once. I get that a lot, and it's again our guidelines say we prefer not to see these I would go so far as to say we strongly prefer not to see these but it's not a it's not an automatic rejection if I see your your name in the electronic slush pile mm -hmm. twice in quick succession I would I mean a good strategy that occurs to me would be to to send the one you think is the best see exactly. if it makes it pass into the second hopper and then when it does, you can put the other one in. And actually, I one person did exactly that. Uh, his novel is in the good enough for a second look pile, uh, waiting for, I don't think I've actually assigned that one out yet. Um, and he wrote in and said, hey, it's been a few months and now I've finished this second one. Can I submit it? And I said, well, you can, you know, it's better if you wait, but you don't have to. And so he went ahead and submitted it. I haven't even opened it yet mm -hmm. <laughs> to see what but it's it climbing is. Up in the, <laughs> exactly. In the it's, it's making its way upward. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the reason that there is this um, is because, it's, because people want to be Bane author, of course, but also because it's, uh, there's not a whole lot of places that take unsolicited submissions these days. Um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how many while, there was do nobody um, but us. The an, a lot will not even look at unagented submissions, uh, but even ones that will look at unagented submissions sometimes won't look at unsolicited full manuscripts. Uh, and so, you know, folks are advised to send a query letter to them. Uh, maybe send a partial with a few chapters and a synopsis. But we don't ask for that. I still get them. Mm -hmm. I still get uh, people who send just a query letter or they send three chapters and a synopsis. And, okay, thank you very much, but our guidelines are very specific. We prefer to see the full manuscript yeah. and a we're synopsis. not going to buy your idea and ask you to write the book as a first author no so it's just not going to happen no. so write the book and very rarely i will get folks who send in something that they say right up front is unfinished and i often wonder why but i don't i don't mm. answer them in in quite that snarky way um i'll just say thank you very much uh we only are interested in 
complete stories. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can think of motivation, but none of them is going to really work for us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I let us not um, have a discussion about how to write since that, that can be found a million different places, including in this great podcast you did with Tony, um, where you talked about the... Uh, well, it's the, really a content sort of podcast where you talk about, oh, well, this this works. Yeah, um, the the live slush session was was a little bit difficult um, from my perspective uh, to set it up and, and get it going, but I have gotten good feedback from authors who have appreciated what we did uh, by actually asking for volunteers and then. No kidding, on camera, reading through these submissions and talking about what worked and what didn't and which ones we wanted to hold and read more of. Um, and some of those are still in the uh, good enough for a second look tier and are working their way upward as I, I go through uh, the ones that have been in there longer. So... The that can be found at the Bain website and, and the Bain YouTube channel, I guess. Yes. Is, is the yeah, best we to... we live stream them uh, on YouTube, and then they're archived there uh, in on the Bain YouTube site. Yeah. So that's check that out if you want to hear things like um, what's a good first sentence. What's uh, you know, is this a good idea? Is this the kind of thing that that we would buy or not? Right. Um, and and you know where was Tony's line of death, as she as she puts <laughs> it, uh, you know that point in the the manuscript where she decided she was not going to read anymore. Yeah, there's a second um, grouping of submissions of Bain also that that um, come from agents, and so simultaneously to even though we say no, you know we don't like simultaneous submissions. Um, it would probably behoove the writers out there to also be attempting other, because if if you just think about it, two year, two years you're waiting on your book, you need to be doing something else as well, trying to develop, um, develop it. Um, and fortunately, there's a, there's other other things you can do. Um, trying to get an agent, that's an entirely different process that is entirely annoying to talk about, but yet. Um, and you will find multiple, multiple resources out there about that. Um, it is, um, but that's also one that uh, our approach to that may be a little different than what people expect. And that is uh, we're, we're not averse to working with an agent as long as the agent is in the mix mm -hmm. in as early as possible, in the beginning when we are making an offer. Um, it, the conventional wisdom used to be that you send your manuscript in, you got an offer from a publisher, and then you ran out and got an agent by saying, hey, you know, Bain Books just offered me this. Will you represent me? And then you got the agent to come and mm -hmm. negotiate on your behalf. Uh, Jim Bain did not like that. Yeah, and Tony doesn't. Tony like does that. not like that, and so 
that is not the yeah. way we recommend it. However, if you, in the interim period while we're evaluating your story, get an agent, by all means, tell us. I have, I can't think of when it was, but I know that uh, probably at least three, if not more times, I have had an author write in and say, hey, I am now represented by this person. And so I've made an annotation in our database that if and when we decide to make an offer, we're going to make the offer yeah. through that agent. That's right. We don't dump the manuscript. We don't say, oh, you got to start over. Or anything no, like no, not at all. It's, not at all. The, the, so the, tell us. The place in the queue is secure. Uh, it's just a matter of letting us know who we're working with. Um, because if we if we make an offer to an uh, to the author, we expect to be negotiating with the author and and to develop a relationship with the author. If we make an offer through an agent, we know that we're going to be doing business through that intermediary. Um, we don't. We just don't want to have a third party suddenly jump into the mix. Now, having said that, I know that if we make an offer to someone, they are encouraged to go find as much assistance as they can in terms of evaluating the offer and understanding the contract. Um, intellectual property lawyers who are familiar with book contracts would be helpful in that regard. Uh, other authors who have uh, published books um, would be helpful in that regard. Uh, we want you to understand what it is you're, you're signing up for. Um, but we're, we're, we're not interested in having our arms twisted by a, a third party coming in to play the heavy. Yeah, it's not going to work, and it and it made us make us rescind a, a, a first novels. And it has, offer, it um, has. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine um, did that. He he took it through that process, mm -hmm. and when he showed up to say, "Hey, here's my agent who is going to represent me," uh, Jim Bain said, "Well, yeah, we're we're." Because the Withdra only leverage withdrawing you have the contract is offer. how good the story is. That's the only leverage you have at this point. It's yeah. like we just love it so much that we'll that we want it. So, and and also it's just um, in many cases it's like why are you giving fifteen percent of your paltry <laughs> of, of your money away for no reason? To uh, you know, you can worry about that later. But anyway. Um, so, uh, when you were in the Air Force and they brainwashed you, um, <laughs> what was the key word that activates you into a robot that makes you do what? And could, could that be included in a cover letter? Um, or do you not want to reveal that at this point? It's, well, the, uh, the part, the brainwashing was effective enough that it was, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not at liberty to divulge that information. The queen of well, is there anything um, anything else that's uh, that's 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 pure gold, uh, a pure golden nugget, and then we'll uh, we'll close down our discussion. Um, I guess the thing that sticks out to me 
I don't see it often, and I'm thankful that I don't see it often, is when someone addresses the letter to a person who is not here or addresses the letter to another publisher because they've just cut and pasted their previous submission and have not have not taken that step or, or had that attention to detail to recognize who it is they're writing. And if you don't have that level of attention to detail in making sure that you address us as who we are, how can I trust that you have that attention to detail uh, in, in your story in terms of making the different parts of your story come together into a coherent whole? You're, you're, you're sending me a signal, and it's not a good signal. Yeah, it seems a bad first <laughs> it's, impression. It's a bad first impression. Yeah, so. Well, Gray, thank you so much for, for going over the process a little, and maybe we'll have another discussion about content um, to, because that's, an, that's another hour of, of talk. We um, could, yeah, we could get into, sure. into some depth on that. But this, this gives, a, a, I think, a good overview of, of, of the ordeal. <laughs> but it's a good ordeal because this is what you want to do. If you're a writer, this is what you want to do. And well, I hope it works. helps some folks to understand yeah. a little more about, uh, about the process. I have tried to be very open about it. Um, and when I have gone to conventions and done, you know, sort of face-to-face with the Slushmaster General uh, workshops, um, I... I I think people appreciate knowing what is happening to their work uh, when it leaves their hands. Yeah. yeah. At least I hope so. Yeah. And in the end, your stuff is so good that it's all going to be worth it. And the world will be enlightened and, and entertained. and, and <laughs> Entertained. That's, that's the main thing. The entertaining Entertain part, us. Guess, that's... Especially a thing. <laughs> entertain first, and then you can worry about You can worry about... Uh, in, enlightening and and all of the rest of it later but make it entertaining to begin with yeah so great well thank you thank we'll you talk later appreciate it now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of son of the black sword by larry korea book one in the saga of the forgotten warrior after the war of the gods the demons were cast out and fell to the world Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live. As untouchables, the age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
Chapter 16 Radha was happiest at times like this. The presiding judge had sent out a detailed information request. Such an assignment would send her into the oldest, dustiest, quietest parts of the legal archive for literally weeks on end. She could read and research, moving from one book or scroll to another, coming out only to sleep and eat, when she occasionally remembered to, and then back to the archives. She'd read all day and then make notes all night by lantern light until the eye strain made her head throb, and then she'd do it again the next day. Once all of the possible legal questions were exhausted, only then would she write her report. It was wonderful. This particular report was about the ramifications of the proposed destruction of the castless. Having lived her entire life in the glorious capital and being obligated to the prestigious Central Library most of that time, archivist Rada had never actually met a castless, so it was difficult to comprehend the idea of killing all of them. She'd seen the filthy non-people mucking out the storm drains on her way to the library a few times, but for the most part, the castless who lived in the greatest city in the world remained invisible. She'd pulled the latest reports from census and taxation for the judges, so she was aware of how many of them there actually were. But understanding numbers on a ledger was different than picturing them as living things. It was a good thing Rada was an academic, because she only had to report on what was actually written in the law, and didn't have to delve into the difficult things like interpreting or enforcing those laws. This was a rather confusing issue, and one that the legal library had not worked on for quite some time. There had been many regulations pertaining to the castless, passed over the last few hundred years, and those laws were based upon prior laws. So she'd pulled those, and found that they were based on even earlier laws, and those were reworked versions of even older laws. In fact, it turned out there had been a group of people regulated to be untouchable since the age of law had begun over 800 years ago. This was all rather exciting to Rada, because ancient history was a controlled topic, and could only be reviewed under certain circumstances with approval from the Order of Historians, and they were a tiny, secretive bunch. The only order more tightly controlled than the historians was probably the astronomers. This case was giving her an excuse to read all sorts of interesting things. Here are the works she requested, archivist. One of her assistants entered the room, grunting beneath the weight of a stack of old books, Thum. He dropped the books on the library table in front of her, which raised a great cloud of dust. Rada took off her now dust-speckled reading glasses and wiped them on her sleeve. Glass of this quality was expensive, even by her family's standards. Satisfied the precious lenses were clean, she put them back on, glanced over the stack and took in all the titles at once. There are only nineteen here. Where's Ingradra's first volume of historical proceedings? Where's Malati's testimony on the prior age? I'm really sorry, but I couldn't pull those. The assistant was a little scared of her. 
The Lord Archivist declared there's no reason for us to look at the early histories on this subject. What? That's asinine. My assigned topic clearly relates. General access to information about the prior age is prohibited. You'll have to take it up with the superiors. Rada sighed. She'd hoped to do this without trading favors. Tell me something I don't know. The books you're requesting are in a section I'm not allowed into. My apologies, my lady, but you'll need written permission to enter. She thought about yelling at her assistant, but that wouldn't accomplish anything. It wasn't like some low-status librarian was going to fight with the Lord Archivist. That's my job. She needed to talk to him about this fascinating but troubling assignment anyway. Her investigation had found a few irregularities, and librarians hated irregularities. Since she only needed her glasses to read, she put them back in their case. It was better not to risk such expensive things on a hike through the library. Fine, I'll get permission. You stay here and... dust or something. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to the podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And a deep purple glitter bomb of thanks, praise, and mega hurrahs for Gray Reinhardt, Bane Books' slush master general. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And, and keep, keep reaching, reaching for, for the stars! stars.